0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started.
1: Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Y'all, today I have the one and only Twitter renegade here, Rebel Educator, Hannah Frankman, uh, who who has done an amazing job of getting folks uh, online to, to rethink uh, and think about kind of first principles in education. What are we doing with this grand experiment? Uh, Hannah, what the, what an honor to have you here. Thanks for being with us.
0: It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: So as we o- often do in the Anchor Pod, we, we typically start off just hearing a bit about kind of the academic formation, early education uh, of our guests. Uh, what was school like for you? Homeschool, public, private? What was that like?
0: I was homeschooled first through 12th grade. I went to a private, very Montessori-inspired preschool and kindergarten and then was homeschooled all the way through. And I I tell people probably on a weekly basis that it was one of the best things that ever happened to me.
1: Okay, okay, fantastic. Were, were you one of many uh, getting homeschooled? Uh, was this a decision your parents, like did they always know they were gonna be homeschooling?
0: So I was one of two, I was the oldest. There's a six year gap between my sister and I. So I was very much the experiment kid. Um, and it was not, uh, I don't think my parents knew definitively that they were going to homeschool their kids, probably even when I was in preschool. Like I remember when I was in kindergarten, my parents going through the process of figuring out what type of school they wanted to send me to. We visited a lot of different schools, the local public school, different private schools, and we ultimately landed on homeschooling. So in my early elementary years, especially it was kind of an experiment. Like it seemed like the best option. And my parents were like, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how this goes, uh, and, you know, spoiler, it went very well because we we kept doing it all the way through.
1: Um, Hannah, I love in your in uh, your your Twitter handle, by the way, is at Rebel Educator. So, folks, if you're on Twitter, you shouldn't be on Twitter because it's toxic. But if you already are, it's kind of like if you if you don't smoke, don't start. But if you do smoke, you should smoke this. And that, that that's <laughs> a bad analogy. But uh, if you are on Twitter, definitely follow at rebel educator. But I love in, in your, your bio picture there, you've got a, a picture, of course, uh, of Socrates. And then in your your bio, it says, corrupting the youth, right? <laughs> um, you are raising questions that a lot of people are not raising, uh, questions that might not be convenient really for anybody. Uh, just a recent tweet this afternoon, you said, sooner than we think, sending kids to public school is going to seem like a 20, 20th century idea. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, we live in a world that's very different than the one that public school was designed for. It is a 20th century phenomenon, these big conglomerate industrial style government schools. It they were they're they're kind of a blip on the historical timeline of how education has functioned over the course mm-hmm. of centuries. It's a very new idea. And it's a very broken idea in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's very debatable whether the public school system was ever even remotely a good idea. I would argue very strongly that it was not. But even if you want to concede that maybe it served a purpose in the 20th century for preparing kids for the world that they lived in in the 20th century, we live in a very different world now where we're preparing our kids for different things. The like economic and social needs are very different than they were a hundred years ago. And we live in a world where information access has totally changed. In the public schooling era and through most of the history of education, information was a geographically Connected thing, like it was tied mm-hmm. to your location. You had to mm-hmm. be somewhere physically to access the books and ask people questions. Which is how the original university model came to be. Is they, you, the, you, uh, the old like medieval universities were places where there were these central locations, physically speaking, for information where people yeah. could go and study and learn. And we don't need those physical hubs for information anymore because you can access anything you could ever want to learn on the internet. So the very, the very like locus point of why we have an so education what, system no longer is necessary.
1: I think we, we, and we the two of us probably agree on, on probably 90% of things, but I, I want to challenge part of this idea and that, and that I think look at like the military academies. You know, one of the things I love about the military academies is that they're still doing like human formation, you can go there and you pick up like good life habits, like you're going to make your bed, you're going to get up early, you're going to be generally a more organized neater person. Uh, and it, so it seems like that, like if you're in the work of, of molding people in a certain way, in terms of like, habits of life, seems like then there's a value prop that maybe can overcome kind of the digital universe that we find ourselves in. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I don't think I do want to make a distinction that I don't think that every type of in-person school is going to feel like a 20th century idea. It's mass public schooling and that just being the normal default thing that you do that's going to feel outdated. There will probably always be a market for in-person schools of a variety of different types, because like you said, there is this there are things that you can learn in an in-person environment that it's harder to learn online. And there will always be people who want that. And that's a good thing. But this idea that we're one, the education has to be centralized. Like that's no, it doesn't have to be, it's a Mm. choice now, but also you have like the world that we're preparing kids for is very, very different. And the things that the public school is teaching our kids is very targeted towards the values and the, the necessities of the 20th century. Not, not the world that we live in now. Um, but I think I think to your point about, you know, in-person schools offering different types of values, there are all, tons of different alternatives to the public school model that are starting to emerge that are mm. allowing kids to learn different types of specialized things in in-person environments. Um in like you know alternatives to the the public school way and there there's lots of interesting stuff that we can that's happening in in that space that we can dig into if you want to at some point here but i
1: think sure yeah well i i love to think about this with you just kind of out loud like we are right now um well let me let me start here how would you even define what education is It, it sounds like such a basic question but we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the us and there's not another arena where we spend hundreds of billions and you ask anyone to say even what it is and most people just completely fumble i mean how, how would you even say what what is education
0: well i think there's a really big difference between what it functionally is in america today and what it ought to be um the ideal of education like the the actual definition is is and this is this is not a dictionary definition but this is how i would define like the concept of it is you're you're training the mind you are learning and preparing yourself to navigate life with a set of toolbox, with a toolbox full of tools that allow you to make decisions, analyze information, accomplish tasks, build additional schools, like skills. Ideally, you're building a foundation that you can then iterate on ad infinitum in whatever areas of life that you choose to pursue as your vocation, your passion, your projects, whatever. Um, so that's what education is ought to be that's that's and I'm curious you you may push back on that definition I don't no, know if no, I, think, I think I think most of that I
1: agree I, I think the the classical angle I think that we would add to that this this uh ancient idea of, of shaping the affections you know to love the right things and this is all kind of new to me I was in I was actually in, I was public school educated I was never homeschooled I don't know how my mom and I would have done my mom listened to a lot of the anchor pods we would have done great mom um and then I taught <laughs> in the public school I taught in a public school for 10 years as well and I, I never heard anything about this you know shaping the affections to to love truth be- beauty and goodness and and shaping the affections to to not love the things that are destructive to to people and to communities and and so i would add that to i think what you gave is a, is a really great definition uh and in, in your definition you certainly don't need this massive apparatus that we spend and i i even heard you in a recent interview saying it's kind of part of it is kind of just child care
0: Oh, it totally is. Education is not the primary goal of the education system. And you can see it just in the way that it's structured. The fact that it maps perfectly onto the workday, day, it's the, the days are ridiculously unnecessarily long. It's full of bloat. And it's because kids need a place to go all day while their parents work. And we have an economy that requires in many situations for double income homes. Mm-hmm. So Both parents have to be working. Your kids have to go somewhere for the economy to function. So of course, society is incentivized to have this free childcare, but it's not that if education's not the priority, then of course you're not delivering a great education. And, And to go back to your question about what education is, like functionally in most schooling environments, education is not the ideal that you and I just described. It is a thing that you do where you learn how to take tests and you learn how to memorize things and you memorize this sort of toolbox full of facts about how the world works and you learn how to spit them out onto tests and do well doing that. You learn how to be obedient. You learn how to function in society, which is not, in my opinion, a very great way to teach people how to be competent, confident, effective, passionate adults.
1: So so we witness i mean rapid change in what in kind of education maybe the very end of the 19th century you know compulsory education was becoming a thing and rapidly especially for that time rapidly laws were getting passed in in various states uh, and then maybe from you know the 1920s when you had the very last uh, states you know comp- pass compulsory education laws really probably until the early 2000s it seems like it was pretty much Steady. Like, this is what you did. Nobody really questioned it. You did have like this little renegade homeschooling movement beginning, but look, this, it had very small beginnings. We're talking 15,000 kids, you know, in the 1970s um, compared to 5 million today. Do you think right now, I mean, are we living through a a seismic disruption shift in education? Do you think in 20 years it's going to look completely different? Or do you think in 20 years most people will still send their kids to the local public school and won't think too much about it?
0: I think we're absolutely going through a seismic shift. I think public schools aren't going to be gone in 20 years. A lot of people will still be sending their children there, but the the ratios of private schools to public schools to homeschools will be very different and the conversation will be very different. It won't just be this default assumption that every kid go, in the neighborhood goes to the local public school. And if you don't, you're weird. Yeah. Um huh. And I think we're we're seeing that we're seeing that accelerate in a couple of different places. We're seeing it accelerate in the homeschooling numbers on a national level. Post-COVID, yeah. there's been a huge uptick in, in homeschoolers, and that hasn't really gone down even after the world's like relatively gone back to normal and the schools are open again and everything. Yeah. Um, and we're also seeing it with the school choice bills that are passing in a lot of states. Now there's a really huge push this spring to get it passed in a bunch of new states. It's looking very promising and in, in quite a few. And that's extremely exciting because that opens up access. It it solves the biggest pain point for a lot of families around education, which is affordability. It's like, well, it would be nice oh. to send my kid to a micro school, but we're like both parents are working jobs just for us to get by in the first place. We're already paying tax dollars into the system. We can't afford something else on top of that. So having the the ESAs available in a, in you know a lot of states to a lot of kids in the country is gonna really change the conversation. Because once mm-hmm. once the the funding is there, the only impediments for parents pulling their kids out of the system is is. Knowledge of what to do, and then courage to take the leap, and those are yep. much more easily surmountable problems than, well, like literally not being able to afford it.
1: Yeah, Hannah, let's talk a little bit about your experience as a homeschooler. Uh, I, I'm guessing you're you're mid twenties, early twenties. I'm gonna, and so this is a time where I guess YouTube is is getting started. I'm thinking about some of the big objections to homeschooling in the 80s and 90s, which was how will you teach your kid chemistry? How will you? <laughs> and that particular objection is now the greatest strength in some ways, right? It's where well, they can have a world-class tem- chemistry teacher or physics teacher. Um, was it weird when you were being homeschooled at that time or was it kind of already you kind of mainstream enough? What was that like?
0: Yeah. So I kind of, I grew up with the like Access to the internet becoming a very normal everyday household thing. So my family started homeschooling me in two thousand three, yeah. and so like I kind of I, I grew up with YouTube. I grew up with a lot of these websites that we now know. Like I I remember Khan Academy when it was in its very early. Yeah. Like it was a YouTube channel. Uh-huh. Um, it was not a website, and and then I remember logging on one day, be like, oh wow, there's like a whole website. This is really cool. This is new, yeah. <laughs> and now it's this huge thing. So it was, I feel like in a lot of ways, I didn't have a great pulse on like what was weird on a cultural level because I was outside of the mainstream already. So like my whole world was weird compared to the norm, but I definitely like, it always felt like there was an abundance of of resources available. But even now, looking back on what was available when I was homeschooling versus what's ho- available now to families that are getting started, it's a world of difference. Like there is so much out there. It's, and a lot of people don't know that there's so much out there, but it is crazy the amount of information and resources at your fingertips entirely for free.
1: So one of the things that we've noticed on the CLT side is that from the data side, our test takers, the homeschooling students, they actually in some ways kind of cluster around actually the very, very top and also towards the bottom. Uh, We notice there's, you know, whereas kids coming from maybe classical charter schools, you know, more more consistent. Um, And I've been really interested as I I used to always call the the top score recipients after every test and say, hey, congrats, you got the second highest score in the nation on this test. Um, And many times when I'd make that phone call, they were, they were independent homeschoolers, meaning they weren't, they weren't part of any organization or any group. And I I even remember a conversation with this young man, Matthew Tolbert, and he was the first student to ever get a perfect one hundred and twenty on the CLT. And he said, you know, I never really knew there were grades. I didn't really, that wasn't a concept to me until the past few years. He said, all of life was learning and all of, you know, learning was life. And I never made, there was no category of school or doing your school work right like like kids are naturally curious like somehow we found a way to beat it out of them um did you what did you do did you do an independent model did you do something more prescriptive with kind of this is what you're doing every day
0: yeah i'm i'm laughing because i relate so much to this um i didn't know that grading on a curve was a thing until i was 24 And I remember someone explaining this to me and I thought they were kidding. I was like, there's no way they actually do that. Right. Like you're making this up, but no, it's a real thing. I had no clue. Um, So I, I'd say that my homeschool experience was kind of a mix. Um, I was the oldest kid. So my parents were a little more conservative with me than they were with my younger sister in terms of like, Okay. okay, what, what are, what are. How how experimental can we get here? How close to the status quo do we need to make sure that we stay just in case there's ever a problem and she needs to go to public school, Um, which I think is a very common fear for parents. And I totally get it. Like, you know, you you don't want your kid to suddenly be grossly disadvantaged if some life circumstance occurs and they have to go to school because of the way that they were being homeschooled. Um, although it's very easy for kids to catch up, especially elementary age kids, it doesn't it doesn't take years and years to become proficient at the things that you become proficient at in elementary school. Yeah. Um, but my my homeschool experience was like we I probably spent maybe a couple hours on school a day, maybe for most of elementary school, and then in middle school and high school, I spent a lot more time because I was really academically inclined too, and I was very self directed. Like in high school, I was choosing my classes, designing my curriculum, choosing the resources I was going to use, giving myself assignments, giving myself deadlines. Uh, I had to have grades to fill out my transcript to get my diploma in the state of Pennsylvania. And my mom just handed me the sheet at the end of my senior year. And she's like, you fill this out, like you did everything. Um, so it was like, I didn't, I did the only standardized tests I ever took. I, I was in Pennsylvania all the way through. And it's a little bit more of a regulated state to be homeschooled in. So you had to take like a state certified exam in third, fifth, and eighth grade and our homeschool evaluator, who's the person in Pennsylvania who just like looks at your work and says, yes, you got an adequate education this year. Like she would proctor the tests and they were verbal tests and it was super simple. And I always scored off the charts because I liked to learn and I like to read because it wasn't work. And so of course I knew college level words in third grade, um, yeah. but in in high school, I did, I took the PSAT and the SAT and that was my first real experience taking a true standardized test. They're the only ones I've ever taken. I was like, this is weird. Uh, so I definitely was like very far outside the matrix of the normal set of like memes and, and experiences around what a education is.
1: Yeah. Do you, do there need to be any, uh, regulations with, with homeschooling? I mean, you're, you're very dialed into the conversations right now around school choice. And it's been interesting to me, some of the detractors you've got basically you know kind of people on the far fringe kind of political left who they hate all things school choice because um you know it could lead to religious education and that's just terrifying and any government money going to support you know religious education would just be the worst then you've also got some of the um you know very conservative folks in the in the homeschooling movement who are very concerned about, this is gonna increase the power of the federal government to say what is and isn't a school. Um, Where do you stand on this? I mean, you're you're, you're a former homeschooler, you're a homeschool champion. Uh, Thoughts on school choice?
0: I mean, my sensibilities are pretty libertarian. So I'm like very pro let let people do what they want to do and stay out of their way, please. Because I would like you to stay out of my way. (laughs) Um, And in most situations that works um i think that the there is a seed of truth in the concerns on both sides of the school choice debate like i think like yes some of this money will go to religious institutions that people are voluntarily choosing to send their kids to and that's okay and yes this having school choice passed does perhaps incentivize the government to get more involved in private schools but they can get involved in them anyway they're already heavily regulating homeschooling in some states like We're not protected from overregulation just because school choice hasn't passed. So if we're if we're being forced to pay to fund state education anyway, or being forced to fund like, isn't it better to be forced to fund the education that we choose? Like it, it, it opens up so many possibilities that the downstream effects to me seem like, yeah, there probably will be some, but those are probably coming anyway, regardless of whether or not school choice passes. And that's a different fight. Um, in terms of regulation of homeschooling, I think I'm, you know, I grew up in a fairly regulated state and it was kind of a pain and it was kind of, there was a lot of very arbitrary, like you're supposed to log 180 school days a year. You're supposed to keep a log and turn it into the school district. And it's just a lot of like, why are we doing this? Like this has no bearing on whether or not I'm
1: actually learning. Like who came up with 180 days? Like, why is that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very arbitrary. So I think there's like, yes, if you don't have any regulation, there are some kids who do get missed, but for the vast majority of people, it's entirely unnecessary. And it's, I I'm very pro opening up people's ability to homeschool in the way that they see fit for their kids.
1: Now, Anna, let's talk books for a few minutes. We always end the anchored podcast. The the final question is always the same every week. What is the book that's been most formative for you? Um, Before kind of getting to that question, you know, you're you're saying you could read well because you'd love to read and you weren't pressured to read. And I I think that's where something kind of magical happens. You know, when when a, a kid can stay up till two in the morning and they're reading Lord of the Rings because they just can't put it down. Hiding under to- the blankets with a flashlight yeah. and turning
0: it off when you hear mom come up the stairs just to make sure you don't get caught. Yeah. You've
1: got experience. You've got experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, so, and I, it makes me so sad because I think so many students, you know, public school, private school, maybe homeschool as well, are are often pressured to read that they never get a taste of just the lighting in it, you know, but you, you got that. And I'd imagine now, I mean, that, that you're a lifelong reader. Uh, What were you reading? What were some of the books, some of the genres that that you were into?
0: I read so much as a kid. I read a lot of fiction and there were definitely years where I was like well over 100 books. Um, I just loved to read. I read a lot of fantasy. I read a lot of like, I don't know, books with anthropomorphic animals were always really fun uh, like fantasy kingdoms. I love science fiction mostly because it was really fun to talk about with other people. I love the speculative aspect, I loved historical fiction because it made his history very real. I loved just like contemporary fiction. Uh, I was voracious, I would read pretty much anything. The biggest thing I was snobbish about is whether or not the writing was good. I learned that from my mom. She would like definitely teach me like this is not good writing, this is good writing. And I'm very valuable, I'm very uh that was very valuable. I'm really grateful to her for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Has there been one in terms of the way that you think about the world that you process life? Is there one book that was kind of the book that you'd recommend for our our audience here?
0: I mean, that's such a, I feel like my answer is always different to this question, like based on the day, but my usual default answer is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. um, No kidding. Because
1: wow, Wow. it's it's
0: one of the books that I probably go back to the most. I, I read it in my late teens. Uh, It really shaped a lot of how I thought about how I wanted to be as like a creative person building things and pursuing the potential of what I could become in the world. You have Atlas Shrugged as well? uh, Yeah, I love Atlas Shrugged too. I I feel like a lot of people, I've argued about this with a lot of people. I feel like the one you read first is the one you like best usually. And I read Fountainhead first, so that's my favorite. But I also, I relate a little more to like Howard Rourke's very creative life trajectory yeah. versus the titans like I love the titans of industry and Atlas shrugged but I feel like fountainhead's a little more relatable.
1: Fascinating. I mean she she is a woman, I mean Ayn Rand is a woman who not loved by you know big government uh progressives mm-hmm. and certainly not loved by you know Christian conservatives. I mean and so but she is I when I, I read Atlas Shrugged and I'm not gonna lie I actually never finished it but uh I read most of it and it it did it it changes the way that you understand um the free market, you know, uh, the necessity of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, solving problems and it kind of just, the um, the magic of it. Right. I mean, the fact that, that, that you really do have all of these tiny people that solve all of these little problems. And with that, you can have a flourishing society. Uh, again, we are here with, uh, Hannah Frankman, who is the founder of rebel educator, uh, over on Twitter, uh, make sure to follow Hannah having some really, really great. And what is your own handle as well, Hannah?
0: Uh, at Hannah Frankman.
1: Okay, at Hannah Frankman. Um, Hannah, thanks for for leading a, a conversation um, using, using social in a good way as well, I think to raise awareness, uh, to, to stir up some good debate uh, and do it in a classy way as well. So uh, thanks for coming on the Anchor Pod and uh, we hope to see you again in the future.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues.
1: Thanks for joining
0: us and we'll see you next time.